The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockets, put down the USB bong and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 265 with guest Remy Caron, recorded live Tuesday, August 7th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter by bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site for your team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's still trying to get Remy's Amsterdam brownie recipe, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your host, Carl Franklin, in New London, Connecticut, and my co-host in Vancouver, British Columbia, Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's been a while since we actually sat across uh, a table or something looking at each other while doing this kind of thing. Absolutely. It's a little weird. We have this disembodied thing going on, but uh, right now Richard is literally five feet away from me, but in a completely separate isolation booth. Not like any of the listeners care about any of this technical stuff that we talk about on yeah, the show. Yeah, but the studio does look amazing. It is pretty cool, and I will blog about it soon. Uh, let's get right into it with Better Know a Framework. <laughs> Richard, today I thought I would uh, edumacate the peoples, the peeps, on uh, a little bit of XML. Oh, excellent. Now, you know, there are two kinds of people when it comes to XML. Those who use it and everybody else. Right. And that second category is probably the bigger one. Yep. And I'm trying to figure out why it is. And I think it's just because it's complex, you know. There's a lot of variables, a lot of things that can go wrong when reading XML documents, a lot of rules that must be followed. And you know from using these documents and looking at them that almost no XML document actually conforms to the schema that it should conform to. There's always a problem. 
it's just complex. Well, I, I think you know, that that old lie of XML is just text. Right. It becomes <laughs> suddenly very apparent to someone who's learning XML for the first time and finds out, gee, it's it may just be text, but it's text that's grumpy. Right. So I'm not going to start with, you know, what is XML, um, but you probably know what it is and you probably see it all the time. But I am going to get you started with a few classes to let you query XML from a URL, load a URL, uh, load an XML file from a URL somewhere out on the Internet and pull it up in a document uh, which you can uh, query and get results back. Now, uh, I'm talking, of course, about system.xml.xpath document. Right. System.xml.xpath document is sort of like a fast read-only in-memory representation of an XML document using the XPath data model. Now, you might think, oh, read-only, fast, firehose, kind of like, like a data reader, you know, for those database people out there. Yeah. But it's really like a read-only data set. That's, it's in memory, it's fast, it is readable, but not updatable. All right, so... And I guess the important distinction there is you do have to load the whole XML document before you can do anything. That's right, that's right. And it's always a rule with XML that smaller is better. Right. Yeah, and if it's too big, maybe XML isn't the right thing to use. That's why we have SQL Server. Uh, anyway, so what you're going to do is, let's say you have an XML file out there like a, oh, I don't know, an RSS feed, perhaps. Hey, what a great idea. Right? So what you do is you load that up with an XML reader, and you pass in the URL to the constructor of the XML reader. From that, you create an XPath document, passing in the XML reader as the, as the, uh, into the constructor of the XPath document. The XPath document then has a create navigator method that returns an XPath navigator object, and that's what you use to do the queries against this XPath document. So it seems like there's a lot of classes involved in just getting some basic stuff going. But that will get you on the road to, uh, and then of course you have to know what XPath commands are and all that stuff, but trust me, this is the preferred way to query XML files in memory uh, using XPath. This is the preferred way to do it. So you want to look at the XPath document class that's in system.xml. Have at it. And, you know, please let us know what you think. Cool. So, Richard, you got an email for us today? Yeah, I got an interesting one, and, and it's doubly interesting because I know you responded to it already, but your response was very interesting, too. So I'm going to read it, and I want to talk about it. Okay. Uh, hey, Carl and Richard, I want to thank you for making my drives to and from work, as well as my time spent at the gym, a little easier. <laughs> I am a .NET developer for a smaller company, and I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. When hired, I was hired as a Java developer, since that is what I had learned in school. But since the company only had one project that was in Java and all the rest were in VB, I quickly switched to being a VB developer. Because some of my work was web work, I started to look at ASP.NET, since ASP and VB6 make me want to throw up. After leaving... After leading my company in a migration from ASP to ASP.NET on our internal applications, I started to rewrite my Java apps and web pages in .NET. My biggest problem is that my company refuses to use source control. They had a bad experience with VSS years back, but seriously, who hasn't? And since then, they won't even consider source control. I've given them cheaper and better solutions than VSS. Uh, For example, Vault Subversion. Good stuff. 
but they won't listen. What can I do to convince them that it is a needed resource that will help not only with development, but it can give us more control over deployments? Hmm. To give you an example of how we handle versions, when an app is to be released, it is moved from the dev folder. Yes, this is our actual name of the physical folder where the source code is stored on our server to the cur folder. Once again, actual name on the server. The version that was in the cur folder is zipped and added to an archive folder. Just to be consistent, I will reiterate that this is the actual name of the folder. <laughs> Nothing is documented. I'm not kidding here, he's saying. <laughs> Nothing is documented. So if you need to know when a change was made, you got to hope the developer who made it remembers. Please let me know if you have any advice because this is just friggin' ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, so should I tell everybody what I said? Yeah, I mean, I'd... it's an old problem that we've been talking about for years on .NET Rocks, which is that it, it centers around old pain. Right. The memory of pain is very strong and, I would say, is a real destructive force in a company, especially in an IT department. It is poison. Yeah. It needs to be addressed and it needs to be it's dangerous. It was dangerous to take if your only experience with source control is VSS, no wonder you hate source control. But there's so much more out there. Well and the fact is that software changes so fast and so many so many uh things have been done better now than they were in VSS's day. Not just source control, lots of things. You know, it's not like hardware that just stays the same all the time. Yeah. And, Look, it, it caffeine-free Coke. It evolves, right? right? So Stuff changes. Why are, yeah. So why are you uh, applying your old your? It's your problem. It's the guy who's got the pain's problem. It's not the product. All right, and that needs to be dealt with. That is a serious destructive force in IT, and and I I think it's poison, and I think those people should be let go. Or I'm serious. They they hold back progress. Absolutely. And you know, in some ways, they've got a huge advantage now because they're not migrating from an existing reasonable source co control solution. They could be going all the way to something like team systems. That's right. So, you know, they just need to be talking to people who have done it successfully. And, uh, you know, this whole, I don't know, I have a bad feeling about this kind of mentality is not helping. Uh, you know, you need to do a real analysis of what's out there now and get rid of that old pain. It's bullshit. <laughs> and it's not just BS, but it's dangerous, as I said. Well, it's destructive to the company. It's ultimately. destructive. You know, the reason they got away from VSS, obviously, is they had a source code loss of some kind. Yeah. And if you look at what they're doing right now, they're just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, to a source code loss. Right. So, you know, how can you write this technology off? How can you walk away from this when you you're haven't actually fixed anything? Right. Okay, enough about that. Yeah. Good luck is all I can tell this guy, you know? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Well, the uh, Sleepless in New York uh, SharePoint uh, training session Geek Fest and contest is happening in a couple of weeks. We'll be there. More information on that. But in the meantime, uh, if you haven't heard, uh, there's an opportunity for people who want to um, work in New York City for a year, live rent-free in Manhattan for a year. If you're uh, young and foolish and willing to get out there and knock them out, check it out at shrinkster.com slash KH6. 
All right, it's time to introduce Remy. Remy Caron is CTO at Wantit, a Dutch consultancy firm. Wantit uses existing software to build end-user solutions. And next to this role, Remy is the chairman of SDN, Software Developer Network, which has their annual developer event on 17 and 18 of September in the Netherlands. Don Rocks will be broadcasting from that show just as we did last year. Welcome, Remy. Thank you very much, Carl. It was a blast. We had a lot of fun. Yes, I think there's still evidence of that show on your uh, <clears throat> on your list of things you did. Probably somewhere. Yeah, we got unruly. I remember that. Well, and then <laughs> this year the sh- conference is in the fall, right? September 17, 18? Yep. Well, the fall in our place usually means nice weather, so that's that's a good change for you guys to to see the Netherlands actually when the sun is shining for once. Well, yeah, I always went there. I've, I've been doing this conference now for 10 years, and it's always in May, and you really have a choice between cloudy or pouring rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's what we're famous for. If you fly in, the country is all green. Yes. So how do you think that comes? Yeah, there, there are reasons why it's green. Yeah, fly into California and try to find some green there. You sure it's not called Greenland? Because I think you might have the wrong name. You know? <laughs> well, I just remember the conference being very, very good and liking all the content and, and uh, the people seem to get a, a, a lot out of it. I guess it's a good deal, too. Well, if you compare it to, uh, let's say, uh, the more expensive ones, the Deaf Connections or the Tech Ads, yeah. uh, I think we provide uh, sort of the same value to our customers, maybe even better. And it's way cheaper. And you get to experience the Netherlands. So who who doesn't want to do that? Right. <laughs> and isn't it part of a not-for-profit user group? Yes. We are a non-profit developer community. And we uh, you have to be a member, though. So you pay a subscription fee annually. And for that, we organize all kinds of stuff. So it's not only the big event we do. We also have four one-day events a year. And we do a magazine. And uh, we do forums. And we have a website. And... We do anything that comes along from uh, from Microsoft. We have a good connection with Microsoft in the Netherlands, so we co-organize a lot of events with them, too. So, Remy, you try to build software with as much existing software as possible. This is a, a philosophy of yours, of your companies. Yeah, because um, I've been around the, uh, the software arena for quite some, some time now and um, started off in the days of DOS. Who didn't? Yeah. Uh, who, who's on the line right now? And right. <laughs> uh, in the early days, it was that the industry, the, our customers demanded demanded more from us than we could deliver as software engineers. Uh, nowadays, I think it's the other way around. There's much more software with uh, with lots of capabilities and uh, which can be put to use for our customers than the customers know of, or maybe even the developers know of, to use and deliver the, the value of the uh, the software that's already out there to their customers by uh, just adding small, tiny bits and pieces to glue all those standard packages together in order to get a real-life solution for their customer. So the philosophy, the philosophy we try to, try to use here is um, take, uh, listen to the customer, take his problem, uh, look around on the shelf which uh, standard packages you can use in order to, let's say, uh, put together a solution with a minimum amount of customized software. So it really doesn't matter whether it's a developer tool or Microsoft Office. I mean, whatever the tool is for the job, right? Yeah. So whatever the tool is for the job. And if you look at 
the uh, the small and medium sized companies in in the Netherlands, I know that the standard for medium and small sized companies are different number wise than in North America. But most of the jobs we do or we encounter are somehow administrative related. So it's not like uh, complex business processes or uh, uh, monitoring, uh, let's say, production lines or whatever. So nine out of ten times you can use Microsoft Office in combination with perhaps CRM or SharePoint or uh, Navision or whatever to uh, to solve their 80% or 85% of their business needs right out of the box. So that means that you're only left with approximately 50% of customization, which you try to minimize because in that 15%, there's always a large amount of stuff that if you really look at it closely and think about it twice, you're probably not going to need it anyway because it's one of those chores you're going to do once every six months or so. So is there a real need for that to be automated? You could you could really ask that question to the customer. And nine out of ten times, you reduce to 15% with, let's say, 50%. So that, that means that you really have to do a very tiny amount of customization in order to have a um, satisfi- satisfying solution for the customer. And in, in the long run, the benefit will be that they will be able to upgrade their business environment or their, their office environment as a new version of Microsoft comes along because the, the rework or the adoption of your customized bits and pieces to the new version will be minimal due to the fact that you have written minimal solution software to begin with anyway. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit of a different philosophy than, than you know, the way we grew up uh, in the business, which is, you know, the the real fun is in writing of that is in writing code, you know, yeah. whereas and I think it's Billy Hollis who said your job is not to write code. Your job is to deliver solutions. Yes. And, you know, when you start thinking in terms of delivering a solution, you know, you're yeah, that, that's, I think, where you're going for. Yeah, because in, in, the, in the long run, the customer and even though we geeks like to write a lot of code and we like to. Squeeze the, the the squeeze out the, or the crank out the, the fastest app possible or the slickest app possible. In in the end, the customer doesn't really care. He has a business problem and he wants that solved, and he doesn't really care um, how you do it as long as, as as long as his needs are satisfied. And he doesn't really care if it takes one second longer uh, doing it with standardized software than doing it uh, in a full customized uh, approach, because. When you, the benefit for the, uh, for, the, for the development shop is that when you rely on, on building blocks that are already out there, and whether it's Microsoft or any, anyone else's, you, you can leverage on the developers they have and the testing effort they put in in order to make sure that the building blocks you are using are of the best quality possible at that point in time. So you're, you're basically building your solution for the customer on a pretty robust um, foundation, so to speak, in order to have a high-quality solution for your customer in the long run. How do your customers react from a value proposition point of view? Are you actually charging less because you're able to use more off-the-shelf stuff? Well, in, what I do is we use a lot of off-the-shelf stuff, so that means that the amount of hours that we have to put in to build the final solution will be less. So you might expect that your profit will go down because you have to you, you can spend less hours at that same customer for building the solution, 
But the opposite is actually true. Because, yeah, I was going to say. I, yeah, because you're you're building this level of trust, and you're you're willing to rely your own development effort based on someone else's foundation, and you spend a lot of less time on building the the, the basic uh, business functionality. They will come back to you and say, "Oh, well, you're done already. We got some budget over because we expected this to be." three months or six months or eight months or maybe even longer than that. So can you add for us these and these and these functionality? And that's where the fun part starts. Right. Because the first are the, the really must-haves, so to speak, that they let you build. But after a while, if you're, if you're done on time or maybe even ahead of time, they will come up with the good stuff. So you get to play around. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. Rad controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Control's Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForms suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls Easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. And the good stuff is truly the good stuff. It's the adornments. It's not the, it's not the the crud stuff that you're already used to. Yes, and it's and and that's where the fun for the developer comes in. So first, we have to bite the bullet and do the professional stuff, and after after a while, they they make us do the fun stuff. So it's beneficial for for both the developer and I think the customer in the long run. All right, I guess we better start defining what those building blocks are. Yeah. Well, in my case, uh, I used to do, uh, we do Microsoft uh, uh, projects. So we use Office 2007 and 03, we need to. We use Visual Studio Tools for Office, which is way better than the first time we talked about it, Richard. First three times. Yeah. The first, yeah, the first three, three, three it's times. It's taken a while for VSTO to finally grow up and be something we're willing to use. Yes. In combination with uh, Office 07, it's, it's pretty cool what you can do with that stuff. And we use a lot of Microsoft CRM and SharePoint. So that, uh, and of course, one of the ERP systems dynamics like Navision or Accepta. That's, uh, that's most of the stuff we use for our customers. Now, I think most of our listeners are going to be familiar with Office. They may not be particularly familiar with VSTO, but hey, it's not Voodoo, it's part of Studio. And they're yes. probably pretty comfortable with SharePoint. We better dig into what exactly Microsoft CRM is all about. All right, so Microsoft CRM is, if you take a look at it at first, you might might 
and come to the conclusion that it's yet another database where you can store your relational information about your customers, about your suppliers, and about whoever you want to store um, name, address, and uh, information. CRM being customer relations management. Yeah, customer customer relation management tool. That's that's what it stands for. But if you if you take a closer look, you will see that there will that there is additional benefits in there. So they they put in a an ordering system. They put in a service agenda. They put in some other stuff, which at first is a little odd because CRM stands for customer relation management. That means that you should manage your relations using the tool. Right. Well, the thing is, if you uh, if you look at a customer relation uh, system, any system, whether it's Salesforce or or CRM from Microsoft or anything else that's out there, um. Having a, a program installed that has CRM in the name doesn't mean you're actually doing CRM by, by by having it installed. I think of it as customer-oriented software, business software that does everything around the customer. Yes. Customer-centric. Yeah, but the thing is, to actually manage your relations, you have to store data inside a system like that to make, let's say, queries on the data to, to figure out who has ordered more than 10 laptops in the last six right. months. Right, so now so. you have to bring products into it, and now you have to yeah. do inventory, and now you have yeah. to do all the... So basically, it's the software that runs big businesses. Yes. Yeah. But the funny part is, most of the customers I have, and probably uh, that will be the same in North America, have that information already stored inside one of their ERP systems. Yeah, right. Right, because that's where your invoices come from and where your debtors and creditors are and, and so forth. Right. Yeah, it's in QuickBooks, or it's in some other access app you built yourself four yeah. years ago. Yeah. So it's it's anywhere but in the CRM system. Right. But in order in order to actually do customer relation or customer relation management, you have to put it in there. You have to at least make sure that you can access the data from within that system. And that's where the fun part of, of CRM comes in, that it is uh, fully web service enabled and it's customizable. So um, off the shelf, you get a a platform that you can use or at least talk against from, from within your legacy apps to have it fed with information from, from other systems. And why is this beneficial? Well, if you're running a shop, who really likes to have their salespeople go into Navision and figure out information about customers? Not so much, probably. Because this will this will get you into the era of uh, maintenance nightmare f- for rights settings and stuff. So you have to do, uh, you have to close off Ledger, you have to close off all the stuff they can cannot access. And then once you have have sealed it all off, they can only access the customer information. Then the system probably won't provide them with the tools in order to query the data as they want to do it. So there is there is a place and a time for CRM to be brought into place and to start thinking of it as a platform for other people with other purposes within which, within uh, within the company. And since it's web-based, you can also expose it uh, through a website using uh, SharePoint. There are web parts uh, that you can use from within SharePoint to expose CRM data uh, within the corporate portal. But there's also a native extension to the mobile. Nice. Which also, which also supports the uh, custom entities that you might add to the CRM platform to begin with. So basically, so, Microsoft CRM is a CRM app, but it has all those great little automation points and entry points that uh, 
yeah. that Microsoft is famous for. Yeah, and it also has a workflow engine, so you can oh, wow. also have it. You can also have it do uh, tasks for you automatically. So if somebody enters a new customer in a certain region, you can notify, let's say, the salesperson of that region that he has a new customer or has a new lead that he needs to visit, and so on. So the whole workflow engine, which is in in the current version still the proprietary one, but in 4.0 it will be WWF being uh, being incorporated in the CRM. So Windows Workflow Foundation will be uh, used in the next version of, uh, of CRM, which makes it even more powerful to tap into legacy systems or um, build extensions on top of Microsoft CRM as a platform. So is CRM a standalone product? Can I actually just install this and use it on its own? Yes, it's a, it's a standalone product, so you can use it. You can you could even use it up until the extent of creating invoices from within, so from quote to order to invoice, if you if you wanted to. But it, there's no financial engine behind it, so if you finally have to you finally have to put it in a ledger somewhere. So that means that CRM currently stops at the at the point where you can have uh, an invoice being printed and sent off to the customer. Because it doesn't no, have an accounting system attached to it yet. No, no, there's no accounting system attached to it yet. But there, there is no vision, and there is Xapta, which which is uh, customizable by itself. So you could you could add a link between CRM and uh, let's say Navision, for instance. That, and that Navision's owned by Microsoft as well. Yep, it's a Microsoft product. It's one of the Dynamics products next to Xapta, Salomon, and. Oh, Great Plains. That's the yeah. Other one. I was yeah. just wondering where did Great Plains go in all of this? Oh, Great Plains is still there, and uh, Great Plains is uh, the, the I think next to Solomon is the web, the fully web-enabled accounting package that uh, that Microsoft has in uh, in store. But there are, there are different layers layers of customers for that for all those products. Right. So if you're looking at the high-end market, probably will be Accepta. If you're looking at mid-range, it probably will be Navision. Anything small to medium size will be either Great Plains or Solomon. What's the price tag like on these different products? I do. I have to buy CRM, right? Yes, you have to buy CRM, and the initial costs aren't all that big. Uh, the, thing, the thing that might bite you will be the client access licenses that come into play. So it's, it's sold by the Cal, the number of people using it. Yes. So it's yes. easy to get developing on it, but as you start using it, now you're going to have to start paying. Yes, you have to start paying by uh, by the by the client access license. Yes, that's true. And roughly, what are we talking per cow? I don't know, to be honest, because I do uh, customization, but I don't sell the stuff. Oh, I see. So, so I really couldn't tell you the prices. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't, you're not actually a reseller for the product at all. You no, just no, do no. the work I, on I, it. To be honest, I never resold a Microsoft product in my life. Fair enough. I, okay. I don't. I don't. I don't see boxes. Not, not not with wires and not without wires. It's only the ones with wires, huh? No, no, no. We, <laughs> we don't. We don't sell laptops either or, or computers. We, we we just do business. We yeah. We do business consultancy and use the tools that are out there as a as means to to get the, the customer's problem solved. That's what we do. But I've also got to think you need to know a fair bit about CRM and all of these products to be able to set them up because I, I could see that you would ultimately be responsible to, to configure them. Yes. So the thing is that uh, even though we don't sell it, we, we know how to set it up, and setting up CRM isn't, isn't something you do, let's say, next, next, finish. 
<laughs> the install buddy 2000 wouldn't work then. <laughs> Mark Miller's ingenious invention presses Next all the buttons for you. It's not going to work for CRM, that's for sure. And the same it's a little more complicated than that. It's a little more complicated. So you need to get into stuff like Active Directory. You need to have domain controllers. You have to need, you need, might need trusts and, and, and so forth if you're working on a server farm. So you need to, you need to know quite a little bit about the, uh, the infrastructure you're going to deploy it on. And also about the tools you're going to reuse to build the rest of the solution. But, and the same goes if you, if you write it all from scratch, because then you have to, then you need to have people on staff that know, uh, anything inside out from the framework you're using, the functionality that's being used, how to deploy it, how to get it secure, how to connect to Active Directory. So nothing really changes. The only thing is that, uh, the business model for me is a little bit more convenient because if one of my guys decides to go, and I get another one on board, well, he probably knows how Office works, and he probably knows how SharePoint works and so forth. Right. So the, the learning curve for bringing new people along is very low, as opposed to having your own proprietary framework and all the stuff you you, you need to build if you're doing it all from scratch. So hmm. that, that's another benefit I didn't touch up on earlier. What uh, Can you walk us through a scenario where uh, in, a, in a business where somebody might implement one of these things? And and how you would go about how you would go about implementing like a, a business requirement and then your implementation. Yes, I can. So what what I will do is I will I will start with a with a very easy anyone can imagine sample. So uh, picture this: many of the companies have installed an ERP package, and in those ERP packages there are probably tools to create uh, layouts for let's say quotes and invoices and purchase orders and whatever that needs to come out of the system. Now, most of the times, these tools are hard to learn. So you have to you have to do schooling for probably the secretary or who else, maybe even IT guy, right. to get the hang of the tools that are brought along with the ERP system that is that's in place. So then you get into the hassle. If someone goes, you have to redo the work, you have to retrain, you have to you have setback. You have well, you can imagine all the problems you might encounter. So a typical scenario to bring in, let's say, work. In, 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 in something like that is that you use the capabilities of uh, Visual Studio Tools for Office in combination with um, uh, Office 2007, and you, you just create a little pane on the right-hand side to let the user select the invoice he wants to be printed and then have a template on the left that will be filled automatically when you hit the OK button. You're reusing the data from within the ERP system, but then leveraging on the knowledge that probably everybody has by now on how to create a word template and how to change it. So ah. to, to, to bring in the Office products in combination with, with a, let's say, ERP system with all those tedious proprietary systems, you can now use the, the power of Word and the knowledge people already have in maintaining and recreating or adjusting invoices, faxes, memos, purchase order, whatever, without having to learn uh, the troublesome uh, tools that are, are brought along with the, with the ERP system. Okay, now so, we need to go beat up VSTO for a while. Because if we're going to use Word as our interface to this application, mm-hmm. up for a long time that link has been so tenuous, so unstable, that this is why we stuck with uh, an embedded editor control in our app rather than actually using Word itself. So... Can you tell me how this is now better? 
Well, it's now better because uh, you, you can uh, make it more visual from the inside word, so you can extend the ribbon control that's now in 07. So you can have an additional ribbon that holds the functionality you created, especially for the customer. And if you would really want to, you could even turn off this, the, the default ribbon that's in place and create your own ribbon from scratch reusing all the functionality that's still in the Word system in the backend. So you can hide all the default Word functionality when you start up this customized, let's say, reporting tool, reusing Word, creating your own ribbon. And on the right-hand side, where you used to have that task pane in 03, it was a little strange because it, it was there and it went away and it wasn't right. really clear what it, what it was supposed to be. And when it was there, it was useful. And sometimes it wasn't, depending on whatever systems you were using in the background. Uh, did it connect with SharePoint or not? Blah, blah, blah. Well, Remy's so, talking about features. And Richard, I think what, what you were trying to get at is um, that if you have users who use Office all the time, that's, that's what they're comfortable with. And their world revolves around documents and spreadsheets. Yes. And so you, instead of giving them a whole nother application to with which to import their documents and, you know, something that looks like Word but isn't quite Word, you mm-hmm. give them Word and that that is their world. And then you just, you know, rock it. Yeah, but, but then, really and, and I, I kind of dug in Office 2003 the task pane where on the right-hand side of Word, there'd be a few buttons that would then send this stuff off to the app and so forth. A yeah. problem that I had was that the UI was totally up to the developer, and I think mm-hmm. they generally built lousy ones. Yeah. That it really, yeah. you didn't get the sense of the connection. But, you know, the other side of this is often those buttons didn't work. You, pre- you know, you'd put all your, you'd pull up a template for a quote. You type out everything for the in the template. Then you hit the button in the task pane. It barfs. Word crashes. Yeah. Your quote is gone. You hate yep. everybody, especially <laughs> Remy. Especially me. <laughs> well, who doesn't hate Remy? <laughs> well, the thing with 07 is that you, you, you turn it the other way around. So what you do is actually true, Carl. What you said is that you give them your word and you utilize data from within other systems, giving them the familiar interface of Word. So what you do is you, you add an extension to the ribbon and you, you, you display the, let's say, invoice or quoting data in a, in a list box on the right on the text, task, uh, task pane. Then you click it, you hit OK, and then you gather the data from the backend system and stuff that in the template that's on the left and then hit print or fax or email or attach or whatever in order to, to send off the, uh, the information to the customer who's waiting for that. So it's, it's much more convenient for the user. They, they are in an environment they know, they, and they actually will feel comfortable to change the layout of their corporate invoice because they know how to work with templates. So why shouldn't they change it? Hmm. Oh, and aren't we supposed to stop using the word ribbon? Isn't it now the fluent control? Are you kidding me? I, no, I didn't I, get I, that memo. You didn't? <laughs> Well, you've been hiding, Carl. Microsoft Office Fluent <laughs> User Interface. Yeah, Fluent User Interface. Well, it isn't it Sounds like fluent. a carnival ride or something. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, for embedding, I'm going to, I mean, obviously I'm going to make fun of that name because that's easy. But on the other hand, the one thing that the ribbon control does is it does group by that sort of context. Yes. So the idea that you would have a grouping for that app that yeah. then has a set of buttons underneath it. That that you know that does the same thing as the task pane did, except that it implements a set of rules around the way the UI should look. Does better. 
I, I really well, love the, the, the ribbon. The difference between this one and the O3 one is in O3 you only had the option to have document level implementations of the task plan, and now you can have application level implementations of the task plan and also still leverage on the document level implementations if you want to. So you can choose either either one of them. So you can have an implementation of the task plan attached to the document, or you can have just have an extra set of buttons in the ribbon that does particular functionality for you in the task plan while you're working with work. The only thing I don't like about the ribbon is when new users see Windows, uh, see Office 2000 in Word, and and you get the call, where's the print button? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the first thing that they see, and well, then you, yeah, because the the print button isn't even in the ribbon; it's, it's somewhere else entirely. <laughs> yeah, it's on yeah. that little upper left hand corner button. <laughs> what? Aren't you fluent? Yeah. <laughs> They've hidden it after, uh, behind the round button. They they put them on top of each of those products. It's it's kind of well, it took me a while to get used to it, I must be honest. And I yeah. I use Word every day, but after I a did, few weeks, you get the hang of it. Uh, yeah, I, be, I agree. Uh, you know, when we first were talking about Office 2007 on the show, Richard and I were both like, yeah, you know, we'll see. It's a little different, and uh, we were a little tenuous. Uh, tentative, I think, is the word. And what is the word? Am I right? Tenuous, tentative, apprehensive. Apprehensive I'll, I'll would say be better, that. but tenuous would work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, want to judge you because Richard is telling me that I forgot English issues. So <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't get into the, this discussion though. Well, this is not a bad discussion to have, especially with <laughs> the amount of sleep that I got last night. But, <laughs> um, but yes, we were a little apprehensive. And so, but n- now I got to say, um, you know, except for, you know, hanging issues on certain operating systems, which we won't name, uh, but uh, except for some some things that you would expect from a from really a version one product, I mean, it, it looks like a version one all over again. I, I I love it. I love the UI. I love the layout. I love the design. I love the feature set. I realize now, as soon as you bring that up, that that the Office 2007 UI is exactly where it should be for me, which is off my radar. I don't even think about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I just do my work. And the reality is the moment you have to think about a UI, it has a problem. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing I like best about 07, besides the ribbon, which is, well, eye candy, so to speak, and it's off the radar in Richard's terms, so you don't have to think about it, is that they did especially a good job on... on Extending the the office suite with collaboration with uh, with SharePoint, for instance, we we used to do a, lot, a fair amount of SharePoint development with the O3 version and the O3 version of uh, of Office, and just about when you would get nice results, you couldn't do it. Like synchronizing tasks that are in a SharePoint list with your Outlook seems like a really reasonable request. You yeah, that seems it. very simple. What's the problem? No, you couldn't do it. Just the two don't connect. No, the two didn't connect. Well, an Outlook has always been the the redheaded stepchild of Office. Oh, tell <laughs> me I'm wrong. But the funny part about Outlook obviously came late to the party. And it's the one app everybody always has open. Yeah. And yet it's never been... It never made the full calm compliant model. It never did. Right. I mean... Remy, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is it finally a real member of this team now? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I think Outlook is a whole different tool altogether. If you compare it to, let's say, Word and Excel, which are all document-centric, 
as where we look at Outlook as our own personal organizer. But basically what we want to do is if you're working in teams, you want to have uh, more group-wise functionality in there. So you want Right. To- and Outlook is very bipolar because on one hand, it's an email client. And yeah. the other hand, it's the front end to exchange. It's also yeah. a data store. I mean, it's the center of, you know, people's uh, data that just gets collected by email. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, though, I can't wait for the version of Outlook that's based uh, not on an ISAM, but on a, you know, a, an indexed SQL server database. Local. But that won't be Outlook. That'll be Exchange. Well, no, I'm talking about a local, like a SQL Express kind of database, something that's a, a little bit better indexed and less uh, uh, slow. <laughs> less slow. <laughs> <laughs> what you're really saying is, please, please, sir, no PST files, no, no OST files. files. Make it all go away. Yeah, well, the nice thing about Outlook, though, there is a, um, bringing back CRM into the discussion, is there is a CRM extension, which I didn't mention earlier, that uh, exposes the CRM data uh, inside your CRM or inside your Outlook folders, like uh, in addition to your PST file. Sorry to bring that up again, but they actually extend in the 3.0 version your PST file, to, and you can have it synchronized to your Outlook from within your CRM client. So you can take all the data offline uh, when you go to a customer, and just browse the data from it inside your local client. So that's that's a nice addition uh, from within Outlook with, in combination with CRM. Which well, I, and again, it, Outlook is the app everybody's got open, so yep. it makes sense that if I create a contact in Outlook, it should be in the CRM and vice yeah. versa. Yes, but if you're thinking collaboration and, you, and you're putting SharePoint into play, you might expect that since Outlook is the app everybody has open all day long anyway, uh, there, there would be a nice integration with, with SharePoint and stuff and 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 uh, Outlook, but up until the current version, they didn't they didn't manage to do that properly. So uh, by now, you can synchronize any list that you have in your um, in your SharePoint 2007 environment with your Outlook client 2007. So that means that if you have a task list for a certain project which you collaborate on with with uh, with your customers or your or your peers or whatever. You can have it synchronized to your Outlook. You can manipulate the data inside your Outlook while you're on the road. And when you reconnect, it synchronizes it back to the list it came from. Yeah, so, you would have thought that would have worked a long time ago, but it's yeah, only just working now. Yes, that's the thing I promised to a customer that it would work in the free, but it didn't. So they made me write code to do it. So I'm, I'm glad it's finally there out of the box. So now, And there's an interesting problem. You wrote code to solve that in 03. And now you got to throw that code away? Yes, so which is good because that leaves more time for the good stuff. Yeah. You know, and there's a whole angle here of implementing later versions. I've already got a pseudo ERP in play. What's it like? Do I have to migrate to, to the Microsoft CRM? Are you just going to move all the data? Or do you maintain some kind of replication between them? What's it, what's it take to take a new app and bring it into a company with a whole lot of software already in place? Well, it depends on, and I would say that you, I'm against ERP systems altogether. Even though I used to work on one, I've been, I've been working on a, a accounting system in, in the Netherlands for, for quite a few years when I was younger. And uh, at that time, I thought it was a great idea to have all the functionality in one system. One right big now, piece of software, the SAP yeah. Kind yeah. model. Right. Yeah. But by now, I, I think differently because even if you look at a financial system, basically, what is a financial system? Well, it's ledger. And it's the, uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable, 
And if you really want to, a daily journal, that's about it. That That's basically your financial core. Right. So all the stuff that's been added in those ERP systems, like project management stuff, like uh, hours and billing, like invoicing. Yeah, the whole order entry and, and inventory stuff. Yes. It's nice that it's that it's there, but it isn't always it isn't always good, and it and it also hooks you hooks you locks you into the, that right. particular package. Right. So exactly. You don't have, you don't have any freedom of um, adding a different invoicing system just because it suits you better. No, you're stuck with the one that's connected to your ERP system. So do you wow. end up running a lot of adapters? You know, sort of like things that bridges between. I yeah. did this when I first started. A, I I actually had a little software company where we wrote some remote software and it seems like I spent an awful lot of time bridging the the ACT database that we migrated to SQL Server and our SQL Server database for our customers, which I implemented myself, and we wanted them synced up. So um so we actually just did that. You know, I had this I had this adapter program that I ran every day. I think I actually was doing it in real time. But do you find yourself doing that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I think if you look around, and even today, that a lot of uh, software that's been being written is to synchronize databases all over the place. Because if you look at and uh, look around in, a, in an average uh, store, I think there are at least three to four places where people keep uh, customer information, and they all want to have it synchronized because right. that's that's the most sensible thing to do. And somehow we don't manage to get it all in one database and reuse that all over the place. So if you would envision, let's say, a new accounting package, you could say, all right, I'm going to create an adapter that takes the customer relation, you know, the customer information and the debtor information from, or the creditor information from CRM, and I'm, I'm just going to build a ledger and make sure that the financial facts end up in a ledger, exposing the web service uh, to anyone who wants to use it, hmm. and then connect a best-of-breed invoicing uh, or uh, or, uh, product maintenance program, the best-of-breed hours and billing, the best-of-breed purchase, the best-of-breed project management tools, and add that all on top of one each other to make sure that they talk with each other with even using Windows workflow or exposing uh, service interfaces to each other, whatever. But I think it can be done to, uh, to have a complete system built using best-of-breed software uh, picked from wherever. And that's really the goal here. And I guess your job ends up being gluing all those bits together. Yes. And and, and, and the thing you're doing then is that you, you're actually helping the customer selecting best of breed software for a particular particular solution he needs in his, in his store and then gluing it all together, making it, making it one big ERP system experience to the customer. But basically it, it's glued together Best of breed kind of software. So, give us a real life uh, implementation that you did using this right. stuff. Yeah, I think I think this will be this will be a very nice example that I, that I have. Uh, I have a customer who is working in the fashion industry, so that means that they are uh, having their clothes made in China, well, along with everybody else's. Big surprise. Al- yeah, yeah uh, along with everybody else. So, I guess you have been reading the world is flat, Richard. Oh, yeah. I read it long yeah. ago, yeah. Loved that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 
Costco. We used to, World yeah, is flat, I, and I get a dollar ninety nine tube socks. I got a. I, I don't know if they have. No, they don't. This is a Northeast thing. But there's this guy who sells furniture called Bob. Bob's Discount Furniture, and he has the most annoying ads. And people in the Northeast will know who I'm talking about. His ads are like, "Do my do, does my competition sell all leather sofas for four ninety nine? I doubt it." I doubt it. So what we do is we, <laughs> we we make fun of him by saying, does our competition build their furniture in sweatshops in China with 12-year-old girls who make a dollar a month? I doubt it. <laughs> oh, man. Is, right. But, you so, know, oh, well. Back to the anyway. sample then. Back to the example. We digress. So, so what I did is the, uh, the the fashion guy says I have this problem to communicate with my um, uh, with, with the people in China who actually create the jeans and the t-shirts and the blouses and whatever uh, because they are awake when I'm asleep and um, if I want to negotiate with them uh, without using faxes or email, which is pretty tough in the outback of China. Um, then, and if they do fax around, it probably will be uh, errors typing the information in on our side, and then we get misunderstanding about delivery dates and so forth. But um, the first thing he said to me was, can we not create a VPN connection and then have them somehow RDP into uh, our ERP system? So that's one solution that might work if the uh, connection would be stable enough with the outback in China, and if the ERP system would support a, a decent security system in order to keep the Chinaman away from all the um, critical information. So I ended up uh, bringing on another idea that we added in his product life in his product lifecycle management tool inside the ERP system. We added a little button, and the button only did one thing: it opened up a new um, collaboration site within his SharePoint environment on the web exporting all the information for that particular uh, statement of work to the Chinaman. And then ha- giving the Chinaman access to that SharePoint site, so the Chinaman would see the, the requested delivery dates from the guys in the Netherlands. So he, he just created a product lifecycle management, and he was, setting, he was putting in the dates he would want this stuff to be delivered. But he still has to negotiate with the guys in China in order to see if they could make it on time and they could deliver and have it shipped and blah, blah, blah. So what they what we did is by exporting information to the SharePoint site, we, we completely disconnected the working people in China from the ERP system over here in the Netherlands. Yeah. So the, China, the guys in China would have access to the SharePoint site with their own logon and, and the security being reused from within SharePoint. The next thing is that the guys in Carl, my, my battery is breaking up on me, so you have to call me back in a second. Is that- yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. We got to leave that in the show. That's funny. Yeah, click. <laughs> That's funny. All right, we'll call him back. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Where were we? So, when the guys in China wake up, there's a SharePoint site waiting for them with the information uh, of the the guy who wants them to build 
to create the uh, jeans and shirts and t-shirts. And the timelines they want. And, and the timelines they so want forth. and so on. So the guys in China can look at their schedule and their planning in order to see if it all fits. And if it doesn't fit, they will have access to the data and be able to, to change it and have a negotiating platform on that particular order from this, in this particular case, a customer in the Netherlands. Including working out the price? Uh, including working out the price, yeah. Which is kind of cool, actually. I mean, you're talking about a totally remote negotiation and a remote timeline. Yes. So you're, you're, you're negotiating while you're asleep. Isn't that fun? Well, it's interesting. I just, I think there has to be a certain level of trust between them already, too, that they're, yeah. you know, part of negotiating is looking the guy in the eye. So, yes. you know, you've got to be already at a point where you know this guy's really negotiating in good faith. If he says it's going to take longer, it's because it really does take longer. If he says it's yeah. going to cost more, it's because it really does cost more. Well, that, that, that's, the, that's the thing with doing business anyway. It's always a level of trust that needs to be there. Absolutely. But right. at least the tool facilitates rather than inhibits. Yeah. So and and it and it also makes it more convenient. So they can work in their own timeline, and the, the, the Dutch can work in their timeline. So what they do is they they use that SharePoint site to negotiate back and forth on dates and prices and so forth, until the guy in the Netherlands is 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 happy with with what uh, the guys in China are proposing. Then in the SharePoint site, we added a little extra button to the menu there, which is pretty easy in the 07 version, which actually fires off a workflow which is embedded in the SharePoint site taking up the information from the SharePoint site and automatically pushing it back into the, uh, the back-end ERP system. So there will be no uh-huh. manual typos. There will be nothing of that kind. And by the time it's being imported back into the ERP system, it's final. It's pretty so sick. After that, we also, the end of the whole process is deleting that SharePoint site that has been used for negotiation. Yeah. I like so it. You, 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 the site only exists long enough to complete the negotiation. Then you have yes. the results, and it all goes away. And it all goes in, and it all goes away because there's no need to have that site hanging on uh, forever. Right. So you could you could look at SharePoint as a permanent collaboration platform for sharing documents with peers or customers or issues or whatever. But you could also give it a very temporary character by using it as a sort of let's say an almost eBay kind of functionality between supplier and um. And purchaser. Yeah, and purchaser in order to figure out price, dates, and amounts, and whatnot. Right, yes, the auction, and then that finally resolves into a transaction. Mm-hmm. So I think that's way better than being on the phone at 4 o'clock in the morning because the Chinaman is in awake. Yeah, well, Nate, yeah, somebody's always tired during the negotiation that way. But yeah. I can also see that you've got to build a lot of automation around creating that site because you could have a bunch of these going on at once. Yeah, well, the, the automation is pretty simple because you use the object model from, from SharePoint to create a site on the fly. You have a, a site template that uh, understands the data that it's receiving from the ERP system, and off you go. So you just use the, uh, the object model from SharePoint, which is fully web service enabled. So you actually do a call to the web service on the SharePoint server to create that site based on a specific template. Then you push in the data, which is n- nothing else than a SharePoint list holding that data for you temporarily as, you, as the negotiations are going along. And you have to have this little uh, Windows workflow extension being connected to that template in order to push it back in when you're done. Right. So you even automate the collapse of the site? Yes. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's import and kill the site in one go. Right. Hey, Remy, are you a fan of any of these high-level uh, software development technologies? Um 
like uh, code generation or ORM systems or or even uh, software factories? If I'm a fan of that? Yeah. Do you use well, any of these things? I don't know. It always strikes me a little odd that in a uh, object-oriented environment, we still talk about code generation stuff. Why? Well, if if you're if you're leveraging on functionality that's being hidden in a, in an object, there there shouldn't be uh, that much code generation going on. Well, that that's assuming that you're doing what you're doing, which is using existing objects. Yes. Well, you know the the people that write uh, software from the ground up, they start with all the entities, and they have to connect those to the database somehow, and therein lies the need for code generation or ORM systems. So you you don't even do that. You you just always are looking for the thing to leverage. Yes, and yeah. we, we always, well the business model is is around leveraging on that on the stuff that's already out there. We do actually do custom software from the ground up if 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 it's required, but that's something we rarely come come across. We did we did a fairly large project for TNT, which is a UPS equivalent in the Netherlands, okay. where we did um, activity based costing. Which means basically means that you, when you bring a, a package from one place on the earth to the other place, that you have figure out all the activities that goes around picking up, delivering, labeling, putting it in a plane, getting it off a plane, delivering it to a customer, and then calculate the cost that involves you know, shipping that uh, shipping that package from one place to another. But that's something we completely did using SQL Server and and uh, stored procedures and and the CLR inside uh, and oh. SQL Server. So there wasn't much code generation going on. Basically, what we do there is take all the information from track and trace systems and the domestic data systems from within TNT and then put it in a big SQL server and have it crunched over the weekend. But did you write your CRUD store procedures with a wizard or anything? Nope. I, we, just, we, we just wrote T-SQL from scratch. Yeah. Because that is, that is very specific. And right. that, this, this activity-based costing is done all around the world, I know. But there isn't one custom. There isn't one solution that fits all. Right. Sure. And interesting, it, you did it in the CLR of SQL Server. Yeah. Because that's where all the data is, and that's why the CLR is there for doing that complex processing close yeah. to a large volume of data. Yeah. So we're, we're we're parsing. If we're looking at 13 weeks, we're parsing 55 million records of of packages being trans, uh, being shipped all over the world. Yeah, you don't want and, to pull that out of the database to work on it. Uh, no. Well, but, so then, you know, there's the other side of the story, which is you don't want a bunch of business logic in the database. No. But, yeah, you, you get into that problem. of Sometimes you have to break the rule. If the, the business logic is outside the database, then you have to haul 55 million rows out. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and have you got enough memory to handle that? And how long is that going to take? You know, the, well, here, are, we, here is one of those exceptions to the rule. Well, yeah. you don't necessarily... So what we do is we actually yeah. we pre-process the data. We, we pre-process the data. So we, we put it to a... Uh, quality correction process, as we call it, which basically takes the, the raw data in and then validates it on certain business um, business specific requirements, and then store it in a cube, which is actually an OLAP cube where the business consultants use Excel to to talk against. So they have this big cube uh, on the back end being processed for them, and the, and the business analytics from from TNT can use the information inside the cube from from within Excel again because that's the environment they know. And uh, crunch the data even further for countries or for, for specific customers, do costing for pricing based on, on, on the big crunching thing in the back end. 
Very and cool. those guys used to work with, hold on, Visual Fox Pro to import text files from a mainframe and then create little programs in order to do the data crunching. Oh, so, man. Dun, dun, dun. So, <laughs> so what we did there is we took all that, we, we, we hid into the problem entirely by, by, by shoving it in a big SQL server, making sure that the cube is updated weekly, and then having Excel querying the big cube in the back end. So we, we actually gave them back their own job. This being business analytics, as opposed to semi-programmers using Foxpro to to crunch data from a mainframe. Right. What's the hardest? What's the, what was the hardest thing you had to tweak or configure or customize when you're you know when you're going down this road of utilizing existing software packages? Well, the the, the toughest thing is that you. Um, you really need to understand what all these programs or, or packages are capable of. And you need to be around long enough, I think, in the, in the group of customers you want to serve to understand their common business needs in order to make sure that you can pick and select the various functions from within the various programs in order to create an end solution. Because Excel is great at, at calculating and Word is great for delivering nice-looking invoices or reports or whatever. So, well, and Give me a specific, a, though. Give me a specific, uh, really challenging uh, tool or project. Um, that would be, uh, I did a SharePoint customization for a real estate agent in the Netherlands. So there's this real estate agent in the Netherlands who actually buys... Um, Places like like old company buildings or malls that people stay away from, and what he does, he go he buys it, he goes in and completely refurbishes it, and then sells it again with a big profit. Okay. So that's that are temporary uh, products projects, but he has a lot of um, uh, let's say contractors on board to get the job done because you need a plumber, you need somebody to do the carpeting, you need somebody to do the the kitchens and, and the well, anything you can think of, if you if you do do a, a renovation of a, let's say, uh, office building or mall or whatever. And what he, hmm. uh, the problem he had is that he had a lot of project leads trying to keep everybody informed and, and being on the phone all day, getting things done, because it's almost like an IT project. Nothing gets done on time. So it's not only IT that fails over, it's also construction that fails over. Right. Well, and I can see the the endless emails with CC lists that are huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we all get a lot of emails, and I don't have time to read it all. Uh, so, let alone a project guy who is maintaining a liaison with, let's say, thirty or maybe even more subcontractors, all doing their own piece on a on the renovation of a of a of an office building. So, what we did is we we used SharePoint uh, for that to. Um, have a central task mechanism and a central place where all the drawings were, were being put in and the people were being informed with, with push email to the, uh, to the customers or to the, uh, to the suppliers when they need to be informed on, on anything, workflows being attached when something got delayed so the planning would be automatically changed and, and so forth. So by, by automating a lot of the uh, the, the common problems you you could envision with with reconstructing anything at all, we we, we automated using SharePoint and the Office products underneath uh, to the, to downsize the amount of project leads they had on a certain project 
by 50%. So where they used to have three or four project managers on a project to get it done, they're now down to one or maybe two if it's very big. Yeah, I'd say that's a success. Nice yeah. one. Yeah. Okay, I got I got a pet peeve here, uh, and I, you sort of breezed over it, but I'd be very interested in seeing uh, what your take is on managing faxing. Um, and I would point out, A, it annoys me that we still need faxing, mm-hmm. but it is a, such a pain in the butt. The number of times that I run into... I have to print something and then fax it or scan something to try and do it digitally. Like, what's the effective way to integrate faxing into an app? Well, the effective way there is um, you could use a fax card inside your server and have that attached to Exchange. Uh, but then you have to go on and do hardware installation and, and so forth. But there's, there's this new thing out here, and I think it's also out there with you. It's called e-faxing. So what you, basically what you do is you want to have something faxed. You email the stuff you want to have faxed to an email address, and then the problem is out of the door. So somebody else will take care of the actual faxing for you. Right. So the part of your then the solution is your app just pulls everything together for the email, sends the email to the e-fax point with the number, and it sends the fax. Yeah. I, have a, I have an idea for something along those lines. It's called e-gym. You just uh, send an email to somebody, and then they go exercise for you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are the parameters you're going to send in? How much? How much weight you're going to? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly, stuff? yeah, exactly. Right. That's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, using, <laughs> Franklin's using, net reinventing laziness. Reinventing nice. laziness. All right. <laughs> well, that, that's what we are computer geeks are good at, aren't we? Sorry, you think? Yeah, yeah, but sort of. We, yes. we are good at reinventing laziness because we, we we spend days on on figuring out how to save five minutes of a process somewhere. Of course. So what haven't we talked about? Let's talk about uh, the SDN conference this year. What's uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. Well, it's going to be it's going to be a big show like always, and uh, this year we have added the uh, .NET Nuke Open Force uh, on the same uh, venue. Oh, right. Uh, Sean Walker's coming out. Yeah, Sean Walker's coming out, and uh, Sean Walker was out there last year, and he knew we were going to do the show again this year, so he contacted me uh, right after they made the decision to do the Open Force in the U.S., uh, combined with the Dev Connections in in Vegas. That's right. So we're now doing Open Force Europe um, in combination with SDC in uh, September 17 and 18 in the Netherlands. And well, the best part for the for the guy, for the people who want to come out there is that uh, if you go to OpenForce or SDC, you can uh, go for free to the other one. So yeah. the, the benefit will be that you pay one price and you get two um, two conventions in in uh, for for one price. Well, that sounds great. Awesome. That's very good. And and this year, like always, we've got the big speakers all over. Richard is, is speaking. Stephen Forte is speaking. Um, that are uh, Carl is there. .NET, uh, .NET Rocks will be uh, mm-hmm. will be broadcasting from the show. We will have uh, Guy Smith over, which is a, uh, a guru on internationalization and globalization. So if uh, all your English speaking people want to do something in Dutch, you can, should get in touch with him. <laughs> <laughs> is Mark Miller coming over again? Mark Miller is coming over again. So we're, yeah. we're probably going to do Mondays from. Uh, we are, and, and believe it or not, Karen Greenwald from Mondays is coming, too. All right. So yeah. we're going to have the whole crew. Going to have the whole crew. It's always oh, very dangerous when all four of us are in the same place at the same time. Yeah. So 
how about adding a dangerous tour guide to the third day then? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, one, one thing the listeners don't know, even if you do go to the conference, is that uh, Remy takes the speakers out for a day on the town, uh, a tour of Amsterdam or, or someplace in the Netherlands. Um, so what are we doing this this year? Well, that's always the big secret, and for some reason somebody knows the first day, but uh, I'm not going to tell yet. So if people are interested, they just need to come over to to the Netherlands. And, uh, <laughs> they probably should check out www.sdc.nl to figure out the program. We have got, uh, in the SDC event alone, we've got more than 100 sessions, unique sessions, um, ranging from C-sharp, VB, databases, information worker, a lot of SharePoint stuff we'll be showing CRM will be there. We will do SQL Server 2008. We will cover Oracle and so forth. We will do Windows Workflow. Well, anything that's hot and that's out there, we will be presenting on the show. So I think it's uh, it's it's uh, worth your while technically. And sightseeing will be very interesting in the Netherlands. That's for hey, sure. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. I feel like giving away a Tom Bin brain bag today. You do, do you? I do. All right. How about this? Let's give a Tom Bin brain bag away to the first emailer that we get with the correct AT modem command <laughs> to uh, to do what, Richard? What should we ask them to do? You're out of control. To hang, about, hang can up. I, can I give a different direction entirely? Okay. It's ATH, by the way. Oh, come no. on, man. I'm trying Here's, to... The different direction would be... Send us a list of the titles of the conference sessions that I'm doing at SDC. Okay. And the first person to do that, to send it to .NET Rocks at Franklin's.net, is going to win a fabulous brain bag from Tom Bin. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N in the Pacific Northwest. These guys make fabulous bags out of material that the Army uses for to keep bullets away from soldiers. This is the... Strongest material in the world. I I swear by Tom Bim's bags. They're the only ones that tolerate my excessively heavy laptops and <laughs> stuffing entirely too much into a bag. Awesome. It's completely normal when I travel to have my laptop bag weigh twice what my suitcase does. Yeah. So I guess it, I guess they won't make that in China then. Uh, no. No. They're made in. Uh, <laughs> they're made in Washington. Washington State. Right. Yeah. All right. All right, Remy, it's been great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. And I uh, can't, uh, can't wait to be back in the Netherlands. Well, we, we will see you in a month. Okay. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.